The following is presented by the Center for Political Innovation, CPI, Building American Socialism for the 21st Century. To learn more, visit cpiusa.org. Welcome, everybody. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome, welcome, welcome. So glad that you're here. So glad that you're here. We're going to have a great conversation. Be sure to hit the like button. Be sure to hit the subscribe button. Be sure to hit the notifications bell so you can get notifications. It's one of those $500 words. Notifications. And we'll give you notifications about gentrification. I'm just kidding, just kidding. Anyway, hit the like button, hit the subscribe button, hit the notifications bell. I seem to be back, folks, believe it or not. I seem to be back. I've been, you know, I I had quite a month. This is approaching the end of November. Um, and beginning of November, went to Nicaragua. I uh, got back from Nicaragua, had a bit of a cold, um, uh, and uh, so my voice hasn't been what it once was, but it sounds to me, while I might cough here and there, my voice is pretty much back. Now, it is very cold in New York City. Uh, it is wintertime in New York City. We haven't had a full-on snow yet. It's wintertime in New York City, um, but I'm here to talk with all of you. Hit the like button, hit the subscribe button, hit the notifications bell. Special shout out. I'm talking to you, Joey. I'm talking to you, Keaton. I'm talking to you, Charlotte. All of you, we got three John Brown volunteers that are right now on the road. They are on the road to Texas. They are on the road to the Lone Star State. I saw them off just this morning. We had a hearty breakfast, a hearty breakfast at a nice diner in my neighborhood in Brooklyn. I got to say one last goodbye, and now they are rolling down the highway somewhere between New York City and Texas. And hopefully they are listening right now because they are they are deep, deep within my heart, right? What is the song, Deep in the Heart of Texas? Well, they are deep in the heart of Caleb. I really do, I really do miss you guys. You've only been gone for a few hours and I already miss you. Um, but I know that you'll be doing a great job out there in Texas. You'll be supporting the work of San Angelo Solidarity. You'll be making a splash in Austin. You'll be doing really important work. So uh, we are really, really glad that you're, you're doing the work that you're doing. Uh, and we're really, really glad for all the support we've received over the past few months. And uh, the hope is, not the hope, but most likely at the end of February, I will be in Texas. I'll be out there to have an event uh, to kind of culminate the three-month Texas campaign that our John Brown volunteers are engaging in. So great stuff, folks. Uh, shout out to the John Brown volunteers. You all are loved. You all are missed. You are the heroes of this community. You are the heroes of this community, the community centered around this YouTube channel. You are the protagonists uh, of this community. Shout out to you guys as you plow down the highway in a beautiful, beautiful vehicle, uh, which I saw with my own eyes, loaded up with materials. It's a beautiful thing. 
And uh, shout out to Christian uh, for his great donation. And shout out to everyone else uh, who has been helpful in getting the John Brown volunteers going over the next, over the last few months. Uh, shout out to all of you. Shout out to all of you for the work that you have done. Uh, it is really, really amazing to see, you know, what has happened. But anyhow, I'll get into that in my opening remarks. Here I'm just talking. It's been four minutes. I've just been talking. I'm not in the usual routine of doing lives because I've been, I've been, I've been getting over my illness, getting my voice back, so to speak. So if you're new to this community, the way it works is uh, I give my opening remarks. I give my opening remarks, uh, and then from there, uh, we do the roll call, where I call you out as I see you, your names and locations. And then after we do the roll call, then I answer your super chat questions for the remainder of our time together. That's how it works. So it's, it's opening remarks, roll call, and then super chats. So if you have a super chat you would like me to answer, Just uh, just shoot me, shoot me a super chat, and I will write it down on this pad of paper, and in the second half of the show, I will answer your super chat question. Now I have to make sure that I see all the live chat that goes by. That's how it works. So if you've got a super chat, uh, just shoot it my way, something you want me to talk about in the second half of the show. That's all you've got to do. You just got to shoot me a super chat. That's how it works. So... With no further ado, I'll get into my opening remarks. Um, and then from there, from there, after I get into my opening remarks, roll call, and then super chat. So folks, I don't know if you're aware. <coughs> Talked. Writing it down. I don't know if you're aware, but Joe Biden uh, is planning a democracy summit that is set to happen, uh, I believe December 9th, if I'm not mistaken. December 9th, Joe Biden will be having his democracy summit. And this is a gathering of countries from around the world, and they'll be talking about the importance of democracy, the need to defend human rights, the danger of authoritarianism, Right, <sighs> writing it down. The danger of authoritarianism, etc. And that's what they'll be discussing. Now, the summit is loaded with utter hypocrisy. And you almost don't know where to begin. It's like, you know, you look at something like this, like the Democracy Summit, called by Joe Biden, and it's almost like a buffet. You ever walk up to a buffet, you ever go to an all-you-can-eat buffet, and they have so many good foods at the all-you-can-eat buffet, you don't know which one to eat first. When I look at the Joe Biden Democracy Summit, I see so many blatant hypocrisies and problems with it. I don't know where to sink my fangs into first. I don't know where to chow down first. I just, I don't know what to bite into first. It's like, give me a break. There's just so much wrong with this 
Democracy Summit. I don't know where to start. Well, we'll, we'll start. Let's start first of all. First of all, let's start with who wasn't invited. Who wasn't invited? What countries were not invited? Well, one country that was not invited was Nicaragua. And I was just in Nicaragua, and I observed their elections. Those are democratic elections in Nicaragua. The vote counting process is transparent. Uh, they have the elections on a weekend. They automatically register everyone over the age of 16 to vote. Uh, people, you know, they do everything they can to make sure there's voter participation. It was a fair election they had in Nicaragua. They reelected a socialist government. Well, Joe Biden doesn't think it's a fair election, so they're not allowed to, they're not invited to this democracy summit. Venezuela, also a country that has free and fair elections, just so happens the United States doesn't approve of those fair and free and fair elections. Venezuela is not invited, though Juan Guaido, the oppositionist from Venezuela who claims to be legitimate president, is invited. Juan Guaido will be representing Venezuela at the Democracy Summit. Now keep in mind, Juan Guaido has an 83% disapproval rating among the Venezuelan population. Juan Guaido claims to be the president of Venezuela, even though constitutionally speaking, there is no possible way that he could be the president. Supreme Court of Venezuela has said he's not the president. The, uh, the people of Venezuela who went out to vote in their recent election said he's not the president. Uh, even if you follow his claim, he claims, well, I represent the National Assembly, blah, blah. He has this like complex constitutional argument. Even that constitutional argument expired, expired years ago. So there's no way Juan Guaido can be the president of Venezuela under any conceivable mechanism under the Venezuelan constitution. Doesn't matter. The United States is bringing Juan Guaido to their democracy summit. But it gets better, folks. The United States claims the elections of Nicaragua are not legitimate. They are. The United States claims the elections of Venezuela are not legitimate. They are. However, the United States doesn't say that the government of Bolivia is not legitimate. The United States has recognized the election results in Bolivia. Bolivia is recognized by the United States to have an elected government, but Bolivia was not invited to the democracy summit. Why? Because in their election that even the United States admits is legitimate, they voted for the movement towards socialism party, so they can't be considered a democracy. Oh, and who else is not invited? Honduras, Honduras. Now the country of Honduras, 2009, the government, uh, you know, the military toppled the government, the Hillary Clinton State Department had a coup and overthrew Manuel Zelaya, the elected leader. They've had a neoliberal free market regime for the past decade. Uh, they have the highest murder rate in the world, but just, just two days ago on Sunday in Honduras, they had an election and they voted the socialists back into office. Xiomara Castro uh, is pretty much recognized to be the overwhelming winner of the election in Honduras. So surprisingly, Honduras has not been invited to the democracy summit. So you've got two countries, Honduras and Bolivia, two countries that the United States recognizes to be democratic, does not dispute the results of their elections. They just voted for people the United States doesn't like. Right. Writing it down.
And so they're not invited. They're not invited. Starting to, starting to ask some questions here, but it gets a little bit better. Let's talk about who is invited to the democracy summit. Who is invited? Who's invited? Well, one country that's invited is called South Korea, the Republic of Korea, South Korea. Well, the government of South Korea, the United States, is inviting them to talk about why we need to get rid of authoritarianism, why we need to protect human rights. Go Google the national security laws of South Korea and read what Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International say about the national security laws of South Korea. You know why there's no communist party in South Korea? Do you know why there's no socialist party in South Korea? Do you know why there's no North Korean Friendship Association in South Korea? Do you know why it is you can't find the writings of a very famous Korean named Kim Il-sung in Korean libraries? Because if you were living in South Korea and you announced that you wanted to form the Communist Party of South Korea, you would go to prison for a long time. Now, if you were living in South Korea and you said you wanted to form the Socialist Party of South Korea, you would go to prison for a long time. And if you were a book publishing company in South Korea and you wanted to publish the writings of Kim Il-sung, you would go to prison for a very long time. There was a young man in South Korea about a decade ago who retweeted Kim Jong-un. He retweeted the leader of North Korea as a joke, not even serious. This guy was not a communist. He was a, he was a, a comedian, a hipster, and sarcastically, as a joke to make a statement, he retweeted the leader of North Korea. And he got a three-year prison sentence for tweeting. And that, Joe Biden wants you to think that is an example of human rights, but Nicaragua and Venezuela aren't. Now, you want to talk about hypocrisy. I mean, this is ridiculous. You can read about how the progr Unified Progressive Party, not a communist party, not a socialist party, a political party in South Korea called the Unified Progressive Party, they had a meeting. And at this meeting, they said, what happens if there's a war between North and South Korea? What do we do? We're an anti-war party. We're a peace party. What would we do? And they talked about how they might have to resist and they might have to defend themselves. And the government of South Korea had, you know, had, you know, bugs and recorded the whole thing. And simply because of the fact that they had a hypothetical conversation, this political party in South Korea called the Unified Progressive Party had a hypothetical conversation. a hypothetical conversation. Uh, they, the leaders were all thrown into prison for decades. The party was outlawed. The Unified Progressive Party was outlawed. But that's a democracy, according to the United States. That is democracy. They're coming to the Democracy Summit. What other country is coming to the Democracy Summit? Nigeria. Nigeria, the top oil exporting country in Africa. Nigeria. Now, who is the president of Nigeria? Well, the president of Nigeria would be a military leader from Nigeria by the name of Buhari. And Buhari, yes, he was elected president recently, 
But before he was elected president, back in the 1980s, he was the military dictator of Nigeria. Buhari, the former military dictator who was re-elected as president of Nigeria, uh, when he was the military dictator of Nigeria during the 1980s, uh, to show off what a tough guy he was, he had a press conference and he announced that he was arming the police of Nigeria, the cops, the cops on the street, the street cops of Nigeria with bull whips. And he announced that if the police saw any rowdy behavior from people on the street, if they saw people you know, engaging in disorderly conduct, the police could arbitrarily start whipping people on the streets of Nigeria. That's the president of Nigeria, Buhari. And after Buhari got elected president of Nigeria, uh, one thing he did was he sent the military to Zaria. Zaria is a region of Nigeria. It's a Muslim region of Nigeria, but the Muslims in Nigeria tend to be Shia Muslims, aligned with the Islamic Republic of Iran. Sheikh Ibrahim Zakzaki, the leader of the Islamic movement of Nigeria, was headquartered in Zaria. So as soon as he got elected, as soon as Buhari was president practically, about a year into his presidency, he sent the military to the Shia Muslim stronghold of Zaria. And he sent them in with guns blazing. And they, the military went in and shot and killed hundreds of people simply for being part of the Islamic movement of Nigeria. And then they arrested Sheikh Ibrahim Zakzaki, the top Shia Muslim cleric in Nigeria. And they held him without charges, without any criminal charges for years. I believe it was four years he was held in military detention simply for being a Shia Muslim. The military under Buhari's leadership swept into this area that was a stronghold of, of Muslims, a stronghold of Shia Muslims, arrested the top cleric, murdered hundreds of Shia Muslim uh, adherents. And, uh, and that, we understand, the United States calls a democracy. And let me add, that while Buhari, the leader of Nigeria, the former military dictator, who is now the elected leader, who has ruthlessly suppressed the Islamic movement of Nigeria, arbitrarily detained the top Shia Muslim cleric in Nigeria, murdered hundreds of Shia Muslims in Nigeria simply for being Shia Muslim. Let me also add that while he himself says that he opposes Boko Haram, which is a brutal terrorist group, Many members of the Nigerian government on the local level are using government money to fund Boko Haram. Boko Haram, which now calls itself ISIS in Africa, a brutal terrorist group that engages in kidnappings and beheadings and torture, really nasty bunch of folks. It is a well-known fact that in the Islamic regions of Nigeria, in the Islamic regions of Nigeria, that the local government hands out government money and financial support to this violent terrorist group called Boko Haram or ISIS in Africa. But Nigeria, despite the government funding you know, ISIS in Africa, despite the fact that they murdered Sheikh Ibrahim Zakzaki, or they didn't murder him, but they held him illegally without charges for years, despite the fact they murdered hundreds of Shia Muslims, despite the fact that the president of Nigeria himself used to be the brutal military dictator, right? Despite the fact that he armed the police with bull whips so they could arbitrarily start beating people on the street for any reason. Yeah, real democratic, real human rights there. Regardless of all of that that I just mentioned, Nigeria 
has been invited to the democracy summit. But that is not the icing on the cake. Because I'm about to tell you somebody else who's been invited to the Nigeria summit. And this, I'm sorry, to the democracy summit. I'll tell you another, another entity, I guess, that has been invited to the democracy summit. And this tells you everything you need to know about the democracy summit. Something called Taiwan has been invited to the democracy summit. Let me repeat that. Something called Taiwan has been invited. And that's what it says on all the lists. It says Taiwan. There is no country in the entire world called Taiwan. There is no country on earth called Taiwan. Did you know that? There's not a single country. You look at any list of countries of the world, you will not find Taiwan on that list. You know why? Because there's no country called Taiwan. There's an island called Taiwan. And on that island, there is a government that refers to itself as the Republic of China. And on the Chinese mainland, there is a government called the People's Republic of, of China. But there is no government anywhere in the world called Taiwan. The overwhelming majority of the planet, including the United States, recognizes the People's Republic of China. And there are only eight countries in the world, only eight, that recognize the government on the island of Taiwan, the Republic of China. But nobody in the world recognizes any country called Taiwan. Nobody. There is not a single government in the world that has relations with Taiwan. There are eight countries, including Haiti, including Nicaragua, that have relations with the Republic of China. The rest of the planet has relations with the People's Republic of China. But nobody, nobody has relations with anything called Taiwan. There is no country called Taiwan but yet at this democracy summit, Joe Biden magically found some kind of country called Taiwan and invited them. Why did he do that? Why in the world did he do that? Because he's giving the middle finger to the People's Republic of China. That's all it's about. And that's all this conference is about. This, this democracy summit, the whole point of it is to rally the world against China. That's the whole point of the Democracy Summit. It is an anti-China rally. It is an anti-China hate convention. It is an attempt to divide the world into blocks. Once again, during the Cold War, you had the communist bloc and you had the free world. You had the Warsaw Pact countries in Europe and the NATO countries in Europe. That seems to be what Biden is trying to do once again. He is trying to polarize the world. Are you with China or are you with the United States? 
If you look at the list of countries that weren't invited to the Democracy Summit, uh, you can pretty much guarantee that if you're an African country that's doing business with China, you are not invited. If you're an anti-imperialist country, you are not invited. If you're a socialist country, you are not invited. If you're a country in Central Asia that does business with Russia, even though the United States recognizes your elections as legitimate, you're not invited. Russia's not invited, even though Russia is very democratic. Everyone recognizes that Putin is the legitimate leader of the country. He's one of the most popular presidents in the world. Now, they made a point of not inviting Saudi Arabia, which was something, right? You know, that would have been laughable if they'd invited Saudi Arabia. Of course, the USA plans to continue supplying Saudi Arabia with huge amounts of weapons as they murder their neighbors in Yemen. But if you look over the list, Djibouti, the African country of Djibouti, because Djibouti hosts a Chinese military base, they're not invited. Folks, interesting fact, it's worth mentioning. Just, just might mention this, right? I mentioned that Djibouti hosts a Chinese military base. Do you know how many overseas military bases China has? How many overseas military bases does China have? One. That's why I know it, because it's in Djibouti. In Djibouti, China has its only overseas military base. There's only one Chinese military base that is not located in China, and it's in the African country of Djibouti. Do you know how many overseas Russian military bases there are? Eight. There are eight overseas Russian military bases. So, so far, we got China, one overseas military base. We got Russia, eight overseas military bases. Now, how many U.S. military bases are there? We don't know. Do you know that? We actually don't know the exact number, but it is above 800. There are at least eight 150 known U.S. military bases. Might be more than that, but we know, according to what people can gather, what the U.S. military makes public, there are 850 U.S. military bases that are publicly acknowledged by the U.S. government around the world. There are over 850 U.S. military bases. Now, they want to tell you that, that China is an imperialist country and that we should be scared of China. They want to tell you that Russia is an imperialist country and we should be scared of Russia. China's got one overseas military base. Russia's got eight overseas military bases. And the United States has over 850 military bases. Now you want to tell me what country is the aggressor in the world? You want to tell me what country is the imperialist is the empire builder, is the new Roman Empire of the world? Well, I would encourage you, I would encourage you to think about that. That was just kind of a sidetrack, just kind of a sidetrack. But it must be said. It must be said. Folks, what does democracy mean? 
what does democracy mean? Democracy is a word that literally translates to the rule of the people. The rule of the people was first used in ancient Greece. In ancient Greece, democracy was bad. Did you know that? In ancient Greece, the word democracy was a bad thing. It, was a, it had a negative connotation. In ancient Greece, they had two different words. They had republic, which was an elected government. And then, and that was considered to be a good thing, to have a republic. However, they considered democracy to be a bad thing. Democracy meant mob rule. It meant chaos. The ancient Greeks who invented the word democracy didn't think it was good. They liked republics. They didn't like democracies. Right? And I believe in ancient Greece, there was a negative uh, for, for it, was, it was considered that there was a positive and negative version of all three forms of government that could exist. A good, a good absolutist government was considered a monarchy, but a monarchy could deteriorate into a tyranny, which was a bad absolutist government. And then the idea was that uh, you could have an oligarchy. That was the rule of the elite. But an oligarchy was considered a good thing. But an oligarchy could degenerate into a plutocracy. And a plutocracy was the rule of the decadent rich, right? And a plutocracy was bad. And then you could have a republic, which was an elected government. That was considered a good thing. But a republic could degenerate into a democracy. And a democracy was considered to be a bad thing. Now, I'm not an ancient Greek. I, I, I think the rule of the people is a, is a good idea. But it's a vague idea. It's an idea that really has no meaning. You could have a monarchy that was a democracy. If the people of the country wanted a monarchy, that monarchy would be the rule of the people, right? If you went around in Elizabethan England, if you were able to go back in time and go to Elizabethan England and take a poll among the people, do you think Queen Elizabeth should be the queen? They would all say yes. So I guess it was a democracy, right? The people wanted it. Is that how it works? I don't think so, right? This, here's the thing. And, and this, is, this is the thing, and I, I repeat myself. I repeat myself, I repeat myself. You know, there's an old expression. I used to hear it from my parents, and I did not know what it meant because I was, I was born in the 90s. But there's an old expression. They say, you sound like a broken record. You ever heard that before? You sound like a broken record. That refers to the fact that when a record player breaks, uh, it would repeat itself. It would repeat. Bup, bup, bup. Well, it would repeat, right? So older folks, when I was coming up, when I was a youngster in the 90s, older folks, if they felt you were repeating yourself too much, they'd say, you sound like a broken record. Well, I may sound like a broken record, but that's because I feel, in many cases, like I am a lone wolf. I feel like I am a voice crying out in the wilderness, repeating, repeating the narrative of historical and dialectical materialism. But at the risk of sounding like a broken record, right? I think Joe Biden said, you got to keep the record player on at night, keep the record player on. So at the risk of sounding like a broken record, Joe Biden says to keep the broken record player on at night. So that's what I'm doing. 
At the risk of sounding like a broken record, I am going to explain to you what it is that our liberal democratic society refuses to acknowledge. That all political systems are rooted in the economic base. All political systems are rooted in the economic base. The majority of human history, we were hunter-gatherers. We lived in tribes of 20 to 30 people who went around hunting and gathering. And in those tribes, it was pretty much rule by consensus. There was some, some level of privilege. You know, if you were a good hunter, you might get the best cut of meat and the animal you killed. Um, you know, there was a reverence for women, especially for older women. Uh, they were thought to have magical powers. There was some, you know, some mystical beliefs where they worshiped some kind of mother goddess. But aside from that, the hunter-gatherer tribes were pretty egalitarian. Nobody was exploiting anybody else. There were no classes among them. They, they had a very low life expectancy. It was like 20 years of age people would live, and they spent their whole life trying to get food, hunting and gathering all day long. Wasn't much time for social systems, wasn't much time for very much. They just kind of spent their lives hunting and gathering and depending on people, on each other in order to do it. The thing is, human beings are very intelligent. We are the tool-making species. We developed sticks and rocks and spears. We learned to hunt animals very effectively. And in addition to that, we learned to pay attention to the patterns of plant life and how plants grow. And because we human beings possess an intelligence that is beyond other species, well beyond other species, we got so good at hunting and gathering that there was a scarcity of animals. There was a shortage of fruits and nuts to gather. And as a result of that, <coughs> as a result of that, we had to move to a higher mode of production. And that came with the foundations of agriculture. We started growing our own food. We started domesticating animals. And with the origins of agriculture came a new social system that tribal communalism, that egalitarian system of tribes was replaced with slavery and feudalism because slavery and feudalism was more effective in organizing the private ownership of land, the private ownership of animals. That's where the family structure originated as well. And a new economic order emerged as a result of a change in the economic base. But after many thousands of years, after Marco Polo started the Silk Road, bringing in products from Asia, after the printing press was starting to be used in Europe, after the rise of the mercantile classes, we got capitalism. A new system of capitalism emerged. A more productive 
economic system, a higher level of abundance. And it wasn't until then, it wasn't until like the 1400s in Europe, it wasn't until then, the 1400s in Europe, that anybody started talking about the rights of man, human rights, freedom, life, liberty, and property. Nobody had been talking about that before. And why? Were human beings just evil until the 1400s in Europe, right? These are supposed to be natural rights, we are told. Right? These are supposed to be natural rights given to us by our creator that we have at all times. Well, if that's the case, Writing it down. That's the case. These are natural rights. Natural rights that everyone's supposed to have under all circumstances. Why did no one know about them for the overwhelming majority of human history? Because they're not natural rights. They're a kind of rights, a level of civil liberties, a level of democratic participation that is possible in a certain mode of production. It was only with the new level of abundance, only with the new level of economic development created by capitalism, that you could facilitate anything like a society with free speech and freedom of religion and freedom of assembly. It took economic development. It took advances in the means of production it took an increase in the productivity of human beings to get us to the point that we could have civil liberties, and that we could have a more open society. Freedom in any society is rooted in the economic base. When societies are economically prosperous, when society is very stable, people have freedom. And when a society is very unstable, and when there's war going on, when there is a low level of economic development, you have a higher level of authoritarianism. The basis of social hierarchies, the basis of state repression, the basis of authoritarianism in any society is scarcity. When there is not enough to go around, there's going to be a state and laws and courts and authoritarianism. However, when you get to a higher level of abundance and prosperity, you get a higher level of freedom. And those of us who come from a dialectical and historical materialist perspective and understand this, we understand that right now, the system of production organized for profit is holding back human creativity. It's holding back the productivity of human beings. Around the world, Countries 
kept in poverty, kept from developing. Imperialism, the global system of monopoly capitalism, keeps countries as impoverished captive markets. But some countries have broken out of that system. And one of those countries is China. China used to be the sick man of Asia, one of the poorest countries in the world. Now China is an economic superpower. China broke out of imperialism. The Soviet Union broke out of imperialism. Cuba has broken out of imperialism. And by breaking out of imperialism, these countries are able to raise the level of productive forces. They're able to start making their own electricity, making their own steel, building their own hospitals, building their own schools, wiping out illiteracy, raising the population up from poverty. But our feeling is that eventually the whole world will break out of imperialism. The system of production organized for profit will be abolished. And we'll have an economy organized to serve public good, not the profits of a few. The banks, the factories, the industries, the major centers of economic power will be controlled by society. We'll have a planned economy overcoming the irrationality of profits in command. And at that point, the level of productivity in society will again increase. We'll have a society even more abundant than the society we currently have. We'll have a society where rational planning and human reason is applied to the economy. Profits and the irrationality of the market are no longer in control. And that new level of prosperity created by overcoming the irrationality of capitalism will then lead to unleashing human productivity and abundance to levels that are so high that the need for any government or any state at all can wither away on the basis of prosperity and abundance with the eradication of scarcity the need for any state coercion or any social hierarchy can go away. We can have a society where people just do what they feel like doing, where people get whatever they want from each according to his own ability to each according to his needs. Karl Marx talked about when the springs of cooperative of wealth flow more abundantly, when labor becomes life's prime want, not a means of substance, when there is no division between mental and physical labor, only then can the narrow horizon of bourgeois right be lifted in society and inscribe on its banners from each according to his own ability to each according to his needs. The basis of building a free, voluntary, open society is eradicating scarcity. And the road to eradicating scarcity is eradicating 
the irrational capitalist system. So if you really believe in democracy, if you really want to get to a world that has human rights, if you really want to include the broad masses of people in government, if you really want a society where the people rule, you should be very hostile to Joe Biden and his democracy summit. Because all the countries that have broken out of imperialism and started raising their people out of poverty with a planned economy haven't been invited. Cuba's not invited. Nicaragua's not invited. China's not invited. Vietnam is not invited. Laos is not invited. Venezuela's not invited. Belarus is not invited. All the countries that have abolished capitalism and begun organizing the economy rationally in order to raise themselves up out of poverty have not been invited. Furthermore, all the countries in Africa that are doing business with China and having an economic relationship with China's centrally planned economy, liberal liberalism, they haven't been invited. Joe Biden is the representative of an outmoded global economic system. The irrationality of profits in command. That's what he stands for. He stands for a society where people are hungry, not because there's not enough food, but rather because there is too much food. Joe Biden stands for a society where people are homeless, not because there's too much, are homeless, not because there's not enough housing, because there's too much housing. In Joe Biden's America, on Thanksgiving, a national holiday, which people gather to eat with their families, 64,000 people in California lost their electricity. 64,000 people spent their Thanksgiving in the dark with no electricity because Joe Biden's government is more concerned about bailing out bankers, waging wars for profit around the world, keeping those over 850 military bases going. Joe Biden's government's more concerned about that than keeping the power on in California and keeping our roads paved and keeping our drinking water properly purified. Joe Biden's more concerned about protecting the private property of billionaires and monopolists and allowing them to continue to control the means of production and enrich themselves. He's more concerned about that than he is about making sure Americans have what they need to survive. Joe Biden is the leader of the United States, and the United States sits at the top of a global system called capitalism. It's imperialism, capitalism in its monopoly stage. The rule of profits, the domination of the world by 
a small group of banks and corporations based in Western countries, keeping the world poor, driving the first world into poverty, keeping the third world underdeveloped, grinding the world into poverty so that Wall Street and London can continue to enrich themselves. A small elite ruling class of corporate and financial oligarchs getting wealthier and wealthier and wealthier as the living standard goes lower and lower and lower. One global open international system where a few banking elites enrich themselves as the world gets poorer, as our relatives die from opioids, as our children are locked away in the prison industrial complex of prisons for profit, as the military made up of young men from Pittsburgh and Harlem and Ohio and Pennsylvania and Alabama are sent around the world to places like Afghanistan to get their heads shot off for big, big oil companies. One small international oligarchy enriches itself amid a great reset as poverty becomes the new normal. The domestic economy of the United States is being demolished. The United States is being dissolved into a global open financial system where countries around the world compete with each other for the lowest wages, the lowest labor protections, the lowest population enrichment and the lowest social programs, a global race to the bottom to impoverish your people while the international financial capitalist elite becomes wealthier and wealthier and wealthier. That is the system that Joe Biden stands for. However, the countries that Joe Biden is targeting at his democracy summit stand for something completely different. They stand for an international order based on win-win cooperation, where countries become wealthier by trading with each other, where China goes to countries in Africa and builds railroads and hospitals and schools. I was in Brazil. I heard about the hydroelectrical power plants that were built by China brought electrification to people all throughout Brazil. I've been to Iran. I've seen the huge Chinese ships docked in the ports of Bandar Abbas in Iran. I've been to Latin America, seen the impact of China, Chinese trade. China makes the fastest trains in the world, but they're state-controlled China Railway Corporation. <clears throat> the future is socialism. The future is countries trading with each other on the basis of win-win cooperation. The future is a rationally planned economy 
that invests in the population, that sees the potential in every individual, that views every individual as a valued asset worth investing in, that says it's worth it to provide a free education to people because they will take that education and they will go and make a contribution to the society. A country that doesn't see a free education as a handout. Oh, you just want free stuff. You want to go to college for free. It says, no, we're going to pay you to go to college because we see that as an investment because you're going to go to college and you're going to become an engineer and you're going to fix our crumbling bridges. You're going to go to college and you're going to become a scientist who's going to develop fusion energy. You're going to go to college and you are going to become a scientist, a computer scientist who will help develop artificial intelligence. You're going to go to college and you're going to become a nurse and you're going to go into an area where they need more access to medical care. You're going to go to college and you're going to become a teacher and you're going to go teach people in parts of this country uh, with crumbling schools and, and you're going to improve their lot. That a, a country that sees giving people an education not as a, a handout, but rather as an investment. It sees making sure that you have a decent life as a way to make sure the country continues to flourish overall. It invests in a productive economy, an economy based on building things, not an economy based on worthless paper, not an economy based on stock dividends and derivative ripoff schemes and transactions, but an economy based on building things by increasing the productivity of life. A productive economy. An economy where profits are not in command, but human reason is. An economy that recognizes that there is no limit to human growth and creativity. An economy that recognizes that human beings shouldn't simply restrict themselves to the planet Earth. Why not mine asteroids? Why not set up human settlements on Mars? Why not build space stations? Why not get beyond fossil fuels and develop fusion energy? An economy based on optimism. An economy based on the belief that if we human beings pull together, we can accomplish anything. And the whole history of our species is getting to higher and higher achievements. That's the kind of economy we need. That's the kind of economy that's emerging from Russia and China, from Iran, from Venezuela, from Cuba, from Nicaragua, from Vietnam. That's the kind of economy we need. If you really believe in democracy, you really believe in human rights, you really want a society that's free and open without coercion. That's the kind of thinking that you should have. You should adopt a scientific socialist, a dialectical materialist worldview. You should believe in human beings and their optimism and their ambitions as a species. You should believe in the collective will, the power of human beings when they work together. You should reject the idea that Greed is good. You should reject the idea 
that we're all atomized individuals. You should reject the pessimism that says there's no hope for tomorrow. And you should embrace 21st century socialism. That's what's needed in our time. That is my answer to Joe Biden's democracy summit. And those conclude my opening remarks for today, folks. Hit the like button, hit the subscribe button, hit the notifications bell, names and locations. I will call you out as I see you. And then I'm gonna start answering these super chat questions. Names and locations, names and locations. Who's with us? Who's with us? Scotland, uh, Kendall in San Diego, uh, British Columbia, Canada, Micah in Las Vegas, JT24 in Mississippi, Christian in Northern New Jersey, Zachary, in Richmond, Virginia, Naples, Florida, Ontario, Canada, Joey in New Zealand, Bendigo, Australia, David Fox, good friend of the program, Arturo from Alaska, San Francisco, Stephen in Riverside County, Ben in Suffolk County, Clyde Bank, Wisconsin, Linwood, California, Sweden, Allende, Mexico, Glassboro, North New Jersey, Tucson, Arizona, Lisbon, Portugal, Allen in Utah, Pyromaniac in Los Angeles, Nate in Chicago, Upper Peninsula, Michigan, Fremont, California, Steve in Southwest Michigan, the Netherlands, Scotland, Naman Mocker, Quinn and Meredith in Washington, St. David's, Bermuda, Neil Frazier in Hong Kong, China, welcome back, Balthazar in Oakland, Tulare, California, Canada, all Alabama, Chessa, Alabama, Zach from Seattle, Eric, South Jersey, Auckland, New Zealand, in the zone, Leo in Mexico, Charlie in Glasgow, Scotland, Patrick from Rhode Island, Carolyn from Staten Island, Tushar in Connecticut, on the road with Keaton and Joey, says Char Char Darling. Shout out to you, Char Char, and shout out to Keaton and Joey. Ian in Scotland, Denver, Colorado, Maryland, Max the Sax in Virginia doing some good writing, Dario from Brooklyn, shout out to you, Dario. Good to see you live, Pomona, California, Upper Peninsula, Michigan, Seattle, Norway, Andy in Maine, Ash from Chicago, shout out to you, Ash, JR in Kalamazoo, Los Angeles, Germany, Finn in Duluth, Minnesota, Max the Sax, Paul Smith in Norfolk, UK, Leo in Puebla, Mexico, Tristan in Maryland, shout out to you, Northern California, Google is not a verb, Leipzig, East Germany, Misk in Russia, from Russia, Malaysia, Allen in Chicago, Patrick in New Hampshire, Ramsey in Cincinnati. Welcome back, everybody. Welcome. <clears throat> so now I start answering your super chat questions. That's how it works. So if you've got a super chat question, I will give you an answer. Joe the Red in Nassau County, shout out to you, Joe the Red. I will give you an answer if you give me a super chat. So shoot me a super chat. We got a gal in Kalamazoo, Reese from Australia, um, Zachary from Virginia, very good. All right, have I talked to Jimmy Dore yet? Jimmy Dore has talked about me on many occasions. Jimmy Dore has retweeted me on many occasions. Jimmy Dore has said he will have me on. Jimmy Dore says he likes my stuff, but I have not yet heard from the great Jimmy Dore, but I'm sure that I will. So I will keep on doing what I'm doing. Uh, and I am sure that at some point, Jimmy Dore will knock on my door. Jimmy will knock on my door and I will hear from him and that will be good. But we have not directly interacted at this point, but he has praised me. You can see the many examples of him speaking about me. 
I understand he's reading my book on Kamala Harris. I hope he enjoys it. Good times. Next question. What do you say to those who say patriotic socialism was tried and did not work? Well, first of all, I assume what they mean, you know, we have to be clear. Patriotic socialism was tried and did not work. Now, I assume what they mean is we've tried to message socialism in a patriotic way before and it hasn't worked, right? I, I assume you're not saying, well, the Soviet Union was a patriotic socialist society and it failed, or China was a patriotic socialist society and Mao killed me. I assume that's not what you mean. I assume you mean that in the United States, we have tried to go to the working class with a patriotic message before and it hasn't worked. Well, um, that's not true. Uh, that's simply not the case. Uh, it has worked, number one. In the 1930s, the Communist Party was very successful with their patriotic socialism message. Um, second of all, I mean, what would working mean? You mean we haven't had a socialist revolution yet? Well, revolutions are only possible in very, very rare circumstances. Very, very rare circumstances. You can only have a revolution if you have three things. In order to have a revolution, you have to have a serious crisis in society, a crisis so serious that even the ruling class uh, is, is you know, starting to question the system. Number two, you have to have mass rebellions among the people. You must absolutely have mass rebellions among the people. The people must be in motion. And step number three is you have to have a revolutionary organization capable of transforming those rebellions among the people into a struggle for socialism. Right now in the United States, we have a serious crisis. We don't have mass rebellions among the people, and we definitely don't have a revolutionary organization capable of transforming those things. Now, so the question is, why has patriotic socialism not worked? Well, it, it's not worked in the sense that it's not led to a revolution. But you could say that about any society that hasn't yet had a revolution. Any society that hasn't had a revolution yet, you could say it hasn't worked. Um, but that said, um, I would say that, you know, recent U.S. history, since the end of the Second World War, we haven't really had a serious crisis in government. We haven't really had mass rebellions among the people. And we definitely haven't had a revolutionary organization capable of transforming those rebellions. Now, there was a political crisis from 1968 to 1972. And that political crisis, um, it was a crisis in society. It was not a mass rebellion among the broad masses of people. It was a rebellion among the black community and among the youth, but it wasn't broad enough to actually, you know, be the kind of thing that could overturn capitalism. And there was no revolutionary organization that was capable of transforming it into socialism. Um, but other than that, other than that, that intense political crisis um, of 19, I don't know enough about, about him, Duncan Chino. I just don't know enough about that. Um, other than that intense political crisis of 1968 to 1972, we haven't had a situation where people would be receptive to any kind of socialist message. I've heard this before uh, when students in Youth for a New America started talking in a patriotic way. Um, there was somebody, you know, who said to me, oh, this, this, you know, patriotism line was everywhere in the 1960s. Well, you'll also notice there was no economic crisis in the 1960s. You'll also notice uh, that in the 1960s, uh, average Working people throughout the United States were not sympathetic to the revolutionary movement. In the 1960s, the black community 
that was largely influenced at that point by black nationalism, by Malcolm X, by the Black Panthers, was in rebellion, right? After Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated, uh, April 4th, 1968, every major city in this country had an, an armed rebellion of, of black people. That happened. Uh, but those were black people seeing themselves as a nation, as a, an oppressed nation rising against the United States. So they were not going to be sympathetic to you know, patriotic socialism because they were saying we're not Americans, we're black people, we're an oppressed nation. Um, meanwhile, meanwhile, uh, the people that protested the Vietnam War were largely middle class people, right? Among working class people who got drafted, they mostly went, you know, Appalachian young people, young white working class people from Appalachia, they went. Uh, the children of factory workers, they went. The Vietnam War protest movement was largely among the middle class. It was places like Harvard. It was places like Columbia University. It was places like Yale. It was places like Berkeley. It was among the middle class. It was that middle class, that big middle class that had been created as a result of the post-World War II economic boom. Those were the ones that were protesting the Vietnam War. And they were protesting it largely in opposition to quote unquote, Cold War conformity. They were saying, we don't wanna wear uniforms. We don't want to fit in with the rest of society. We don't want to be military. We want to be pacifists. We want to be free thinkers. We want to be independent. It was a rejection of collectivism. It was a cultural movement trying to break with the authoritarian military structures that came out of the Second World War and were you know, driving McCarthyism uh, during the early 1950s. And it, so it was a movement, the 1960s, left among black people was black nationalism and among you know the middle class college kids uh, it was largely uh, it was largely an expression of middle class alienation so on that basis um, except for the small minority of folks who became communists on that basis it wasn't you know going to be a situation where a patriotic socialist message would appeal to the broad masses of people right if one section of society is rebelling and saying we're not americans and another section of society is saying, we don't fit in with this thing, we wanna do our own thing, man. Of course, patriotic socialism isn't gonna work with them. And you'll notice, however, among the broad masses, that's how the right wing was able to, you know, to push back in the rise of neoconservatism, starting with Nixon, eventually culminating in Reagan, was a collectivist, patriotic, right-wing response from the conservatives, right? You know, you had the song, Okie from Muskogee. You ever hear that song? Well, I'm proud to be an Okie from Muskogee, right? Football's still the roughest game on campus, and the kids there still respect the college dean. Right, it was a hit song by Merrill Haggard, the country singer. It was all about how in middle America they don't protest and they don't smoke marijuana. And you know, and that was that was the response, right? So middle America, which still felt very collectivist, which still felt very patriotic, was not part of the mass rebellions. Whereas the people that were part of the mass rebellions were people that had an explicit alienation from America. So it makes perfect sense, perfect sense that average, you know, average, average Americans on the one hand who were not having an economic crisis, who had, a, you know, the Cold War economic boom, you know, they still had the American dream. Their living standards were still rising at that point until the economic decline of the 70s. So they weren't going to be interested in it. And the people that were were explicitly interested in nonconformity in black nationalism, et cetera. So of course, in a period where the economy is good, patriotic socialism wouldn't work. Um, 
you know, and I, I talk a lot about the new communist movement in the 1970s. A lot of these Maoists and even some Trotskyites, they went and got jobs in factories, tried to win over their co-workers to communism, and it didn't work. Their co-workers didn't want to hear it. And it made sense because their co-workers said, look, I've got a high standard of living. I'm able to work in a factory and, and have a decent, you know, pay and, and, you know, and, you know, it didn't work. This is not the 70s. This is not the 80s. This isn't the 90s. The U.S. economy has gone downhill and further 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 downhill. The basic infrastructure of the country is falling apart. There is an economic crisis now. There was not an economic crisis in the 60s. There is definitely an economic crisis now. And you'll notice that during the 1930s, the messaging of the Communist Party was very patriotic. We're the true Americans, right? You know, uh, you, you read anything from the Communist Party. They're the true Americans. Communism is nothing but 20th century Americanism. It was ultra patriotic. And so were the fascists. And so was Roosevelt. So was everybody. Because when people are desperate and they're struggling, they want to be part of a group because a group will take care of them. The last thing that anyone who's desperate and poor and starving wants is to be on your own right? Being on your own, man, right? That's based on a level of economic prosperity, right? You know, when you, you say, hey, I want to do my own thing. Well, if you don't have an income, you ain't going to do your own thing. It takes a level of economic development to want to do your own thing. But when people are desperate and poor and starving, they want to be part of a group because a group will take care of them. And so, you know, the idea that now, uh, now is not, look, it's A does not equal A. Right? The first A cannot be equal to the second A. All that exists is matter, and that matter is constantly in a state of motion. The world is constantly changing. And when people say, well, patriotic socialism has been tried and it did not work, well, it's been tried in situations where the economy hasn't been collapsing. It's been tried in situations where the only people that were interested in socialism were an alienated fringe on the college campuses or folks that were explicitly rebelling against, you know, against being Americans, were, were, were oriented toward black nationalism. Um, but to say it's been tried among the broad masses of people and it didn't work, well, I'm sorry, we're in a new situation. Um, and look, there's, there's also, there's different levels of patriotic socialism, okay? You know, we're not going out here and saying that, that uh, you know, that, you know, that, I don't know, I mean, the point is, let me just put it this way. The point is we want a better life for the people of the United States. We want life to get better for people in the United States. We want average Americans to see their living standards increase. That's what we want. And that means we're not explicitly anti-American. We're not going around saying, screw this country, destroy this country. We're not saying that. We're saying rather, because we love this country, because we want this country to improve, we want socialism, right? There's no reason to be over the top about it, right? I have not yet marched with an American flag. I wouldn't be opposed to doing that. I wouldn't be opposed to having a demonstration at some point with the American flag, but I've never done it. I've never felt that was necessary. The reason to say that you're a patriotic socialist is to counter the destructive message coming out of the left right now. Most Americans, when they think of the left, they think of Antifa. They think of buildings catching on fire. 
They think of people breaking windows. They think of people saying, fuck this country, F America. They think of a group of very negative, destructive, hostile people who don't want their lives to get any better. That's what they think the left is. I will never forget when I was in Wheeling, West Virginia, and I interviewed a steel worker. And I asked the steel worker about the election of Donald Trump. This actually happened. You can watch the news story. And he told me he didn't vote for the Democrats because the Democrats don't care about the working man anymore. Now they're all a bunch of socialists. And it broke my heart. How could someone say that you don't care about the working man because you're a socialist? But in his mind, a socialist was a destructive person. A socialist was somebody who wanted violence and wanted to tear up the country and wanted to make things worse. He wanted life to get better. Well, we need Americans who want their life to get better to understand that that's what socialists want. And if you, if you say F this country, if you say, I want to destroy this country, it's racist and evil, that communicates to people, if I want a better country, you're not the horse I should bet on, right? This is pretty basic, right? If you want to be the leader of Brazil, you come up with a political platform to make life better in Brazil. You go to the masses of Brazil with your program to improve life in Brazil. And if they like your program, they vote for you. Pretty basic, right? This is what the Democrats do. This is what the Republicans do. When there's an election, the, people, the Republican Party wants people to vote for them. So they come up with policies that they say will make life better in the country. They tell the people about those policies. The people listen to them. And if they think their policies will improve life in the country, they vote for them. The Democrats, they come up with policies they think or they say will improve life in the country. They tell the people about those policies. The people, if they think those policies will improve their life, they vote for them. This is politics 101. It's not very complicated, right? If you want the people of the country to support you, you need to make clear to them that your political agenda will improve their lives. Pretty basic. Everybody, everybody gets this. Libertarians get this. Libertarians don't go around saying that libertarianism will destroy the United States. They say, no, if you want the United States to be better, adopt free market policy. Neo-Nazis say this. Neo-Nazis don't go around saying, oh, our policies are going to make your life worse. No, neo-Nazis go around saying, oh, if you want the country to get better, adopt our policies. It's only communists that have it in their head that we should go around telling everyone your life should be worse. It's, it is beyond me, right? First December is the 60th anniversary of raising the Morning Star for West Papuan independence. Anniversary, raising star. All right, wrote it down. Only communists that have it in their head uh, that the way we're going to win over the people of the United States is we're going to go around telling them that we want your life to get worse. We hate the country. We hate the country. We hate you. You're living on stolen land. This country was founded on racism. You should be ashamed of yourself. All the wealth in this country was stolen from people around the world. You should be ashamed of yourself. We want to tear it down, burn it down. I mean... I mean, that might appeal to some angry teenagers. 
who are looking for the libidinal release of destruction. They want to tell mom and dad how angry they are about, you know, about, about their authority, but it might, might appeal to other marginalized groups, uh, you know, who, who feel, you know, righteous anger about how they've been treated over the years. But at the end of the day, that message is not a serious program for winning power. If you really want to lead a country, you don't go around telling everyone in the country that you're going to make it worse and you're going to tear it down. That is not a winning message. If you want to make life better in the country, you go to the people with a message of how you're going to make life better in the country, how you're going to win. I mean, it's just, this is pretty basic. And I feel like frustrated that I have to explain myself on this point, right? It seems like people on the left are not really interested in winning over the broad masses of people. They're interested in proving how ultra-revolutionary they are to the other communists, right? That's what they want to do. They don't really care what average Americans think. They want to prove to the other communists how ultra-revolutionary they are. They want to win the internet contest about how, how ultra-revolutionary they are. And it's, it's childish. If we seriously want to lead the country, we need average Americans to understand that our program and our policies will improve the country. And if you can't do that, get out of politics then. Because, I mean, you know, you're, you're not, if, if that is something that you can't comprehend, uh, then, you know, you shouldn't be doing communism politics, right? The John Brown volunteers are in Texas. They're going to be knocking on people's doors for the campaigns that they're working on. I mean, they're not there yet. They're on their way. They're plowing down the highway, you know, and, you know, they're, they're doing their best to average, you know, they were going out on the streets of New York before that. They're trying to win people over. Um, if you're not interested in winning people over, if you're just trying to prove to the other communists how ultra-revolutionary you are, you and I are doing something different, right? I mean, as I said before, um, I don't take advice on how to barbecue from a vegan, right? If you don't believe in barbecuing, barbecuing meat, you're a vegan, why should I let you tell me how to barbecue? You don't believe in eating meat, right? I, I don't take dating advice from incels. I was looking for a girlfriend. The last person I would ask for advice on it is someone who says, oh, I can never get a girlfriend, it's hopeless. I would not ask them for their advice. And people that think there is no revolutionary potential in the United States, people who think that, that, that we shouldn't be trying to win over broad masses of Americans, are not the kind of people that I'm interested in listening to about how I should talk about communism. Because I'm talking about communism with the intent to actually see it come into being. And so I don't really care. If you think that there's no hope here, that the American working class are all a bunch of uh, you know, Euro settlers and they're all racist. And you, I mean, if you don't wanna actually see socialism, I don't care what you think about how I should talk about socialism. I'm not interested in winning the best communist on YouTube, you know, award. I'm not interested in, I'm just not. I mean, and I, I, I guess I'm repeating myself. And I think everyone in the chat seems to get what I'm saying, but I, it just bears repeating because it, it seems like such an obvious point, but it's lost on so many people. Uh, and so it bears repeating, but I'm just, I'm just repeating the point because you can't say it enough. Are we in it to win it or not? Look, there's a very important essay. How was Mao not right, being violent? There's a very important essay by Mao. It's called Report 
report on the peasant uprising in Hunan. And I included it in our, on our Center for Political Innovation educational manual. It's a very important essay. And in that essay, Mao Zedong, um, you know, he, he's talking about how there's this huge rebellion going on in Hunan, among the countryside, among the rural folks. And he's yelling at his own party. He's yelling at his own party. He said, how, you guys, there's this huge rebellion going on among the peasantry. We got to go be part of it. Um, and what that essay, Mao is furious that the Chinese Communist Party has turned its back on these, this rebellion. He says, if we're going to actually win the Chinese revolution, we need to get to these folks in the countryside. And there's a very important book called What is to be Done, written by Vladimir Lenin. It's it's a very similar piece, not about peasants in the countryside, but it's Lenin saying, hey, if we're going to win this, if we're going to actually bring socialism to China, we got to get it done. We got to change our tactics to actually win it. Um, you know, you can talk about Bolivarianism and how the socialist movement reoriented itself in the 1990s. They abandoned in Latin America. They stopped going out in the countryside and trying to wage guerrilla warfare. And instead, they formed popular front coalitions. They got Hugo Chavez elected. They got Evo Morales elected. They built class collaborationist united fronts against imperialism. And shout out to Convo Couch, my good friends on Convo Couch who are down there in Honduras reporting on the elections, right? Where another popular front coalition got elected. That if the situation changes in 24 hours, the tactics must also change in 24 hours. And every revolution that's ever been successful, there's a turning point about a decade before it, where the revolutionary movement gets together and says, all right, we're gonna change our tactics. We're gonna change our tactics so we can actually win. And if you look at every revolution that's been successful, there becomes a moment where somebody, Lenin, Mao, you know, the, the Cuban Communist Party, the, I mean, somebody says, oh shit, this could actually happen. We could actually win. We got to get our shit together now. There's a moment like that. There's a moment of clarity. 1903 was the moment of clarity in Russia. 1927 was the moment of clarity in China. But, but a, dec almost a decade to two decades, 10 to 20 years before every revolution, there's somebody, there's some revolutionary leader, some revolutionary group that says, oh shit, guys, we could actually win. And then they drastically change their tactics in order to do it. And that's us. I mean, here at the Center for Political Innovation, I, I hate to say it, but that's what we're doing here, or at least trying to do. We're saying that if we, we might be able to actually have socialism in America. You know that? We're living in the last days, I am convinced, of American capitalism and imperialism. You look at January 6th, you look at Charlottesville, you look at the economic collapse, I think we could very easily have a socialist revolution in the United States. We could have a government of action that fights for working families. But if we're gonna do that, if we're gonna do that, we're gonna have to change our tactics. And we need a moment, there needs to be a moment of reckoning. A moment where we say, oh shit, we could actually win this. We need to start talking like we might actually be able to win this. And that means not telling average Americans that we're their enemies and not saying we want to tear up and destroy the country, but instead putting forward policy solutions 
to actually make life better in the country. That's what it means. It means talking like we're real serious worker politicians. It means wearing a tie. It means wearing a suit. That's what it means. So there you go. I have not yet seen Oliver Stone's JFK documentary, but I want to. I am fascinated by John F. Kennedy's assassination and the various facts about it that have been concealed and revealed over the years. Um, you know, uh, and I, I love Oliver Stone's work. I really do. Uh, his film South of the Border is about the Latin American movements for socialism. It's tremendous. Um, you know, he's done a lot of great stuff over the years. Big fan of Oliver Stone. So, um, yeah, I can't wait to see that movie. Um, you know, I maintain that the reason JFK was killed uh, is because JFK uh, was challenging the military industrial complex. Uh, he was with the soft power New England liberal wing of the CIA uh, that wanted to fight the communists uh, mainly by increasing programs like the Peace Corps uh, and that he wanted to, you know, basically in the hopes of defeating the Soviet Union, he wanted to integrate the United States in to the Soviet economy. Um, right before he was killed, many people don't know this, John F. Kennedy proposed making the space program and the moon mission a joint operation. He wanted the Soviet Union and the United States to go to the moon together. And in his final UN speech, that's what he said. He said, you know, he proposed to Mr. Khrushchev, I propose that the USA and the Soviet Union go to the moon together. Imagine that, right? Now he wasn't a communist, definitely was not a communist. Definitely was not a communist. Uh, but his strategy for how to def defeat communism was through, um, well, Lee Harvey, an ultra-leftist. His strategy about how to defeat communism was by integrating the U.S. economy with the Soviet economy. Uh, it was about, you know, sending, you know, playing Mr. Nice Guy around the world, having the USA help countries develop. And he wanted to, he wanted to defeat the Soviet Union by, by doing good stuff rather than having big, huge wars. But the US economy needed big, huge wars. The US economy was centered around war. Coming out of the Second World War, we had the military-industrial complex. Uh, Dwight Eisenhower warned, as he was leaving office, he warned the country about it. He said, this is a problem. The US economy was centered around big, huge wars. John F. Kennedy was not ready to have big, huge wars. And so that's why he was gotten rid of. That's what I maintain. I wasn't there, um, but there you go. I see there's a question about Lee Harvey Oswald. I'll answer that later. What did I think of the Lukashenko interview? He nailed it. It was great. I mean, Lukashenko, I mean, he talks about how the USA foments unrest around the world. Uh, you know, the USA, uh, you know, has these NGOs that go in there. I mean, yeah, he talked about how, you know, how, how they do everything they can to, to try and discredit, you know, socialist governments and such. You know, I've always had a positive feeling about Lukashenko. Uh, when I was in high school, I bought a book called The Last Soviet Republic. And it's a biography of Lukashenko and leadership of Belarus. He's done a lot to, I mean, I mean, in the 90s, all those countries, Russia, Lithuania, Latvia, Moldova, they were just, Ukraine, they were economically devastated. There were parts of Ukraine that didn't have electricity. For They only had electricity for like two hours a day and stuff. I mean, it was like the, the austerity, the imposition of brutal free market capitalism in, uh, in Russia and in the surrounding countries following the fall of the USSR was devastating. 
not in Belarus. Lukashenko, the socialist president, he got in there and he said, we're not going to have an austerity regime here. We're not going to have mass privatizations. He, he said the Soviet Union had problems, but he considered himself to be a communist. He admired uh, the Soviet Union and, and he, he, you know, he didn't dismantle socialism. And that's why they hate him. That's why they call it the last Soviet Republic. How come conspiracy there is? Don't talk about CIA conspiracy, right? <laughs> CIA conspiracy theorists. Never. No. Conspiracy to make think bad. All righty. If Lenin was alive today, what would his line be on war with China? Well, we all know what Lenin wrote uh, in, his, um, in his book. I mean, I, I'm not advocating this by any means. I'm just, I'll tell you what Lenin said, right? We all know what Lenin wrote, all right? We all know what Lenin wrote. And, um, you know, take it or leave it. I'm just going to tell you what Lenin wrote. I mean, I cannot... I can, I can tell you what I believe, but that's not what I'm doing right now. I'm telling you what Lenin himself wrote. And I cannot falsify what Lenin wrote. We all know what Lenin wrote. So I'll just tell you what Lenin wrote. Vladimir Lenin wrote that it is the duty of revolutionaries to turn imperialist war into civil war. Did you know that? Go read it. That's what Lenin said. He said it is the duty of revolutionaries to turn imperialist war into civil war. Right? Uh, Lenin said that it was the duty of revolutionaries when imperialist wars are being waged to urge the workers to turn their guns around, to make war against the war makers. That's what the Bolsheviks did in Russia. They made war against the war makers, right? They were being sent off to die in a war with the Germans and the Austrians, and they turned their guns around. I mean, that's what Lenin said. I mean, I'm, you know, obviously we're not at war with China. An all-out war with China uh, would be the end of humanity. Uh, that would be the end of humanity. Uh, that would be a nuclear apocalypse and we would all die. Um, and I can imagine that in such a circumstance, uh, there would be a probably, you know, if, if our leaders, uh, you know, looked like they were about to nuke China and there was about to be a nuclear exchange, I can imagine that there would be a mass rebellion among the population. The population would say, uh, don't do that. And there would be some kind of mass rebellion among the population. During the Cold War, they took polls. They took polls among the population. And the, there were people that said, look, if there's going to be a nuclear war with Russia, if we've got a president who's so crazy uh, that, um, you know, that he was going to nuke Russia and start World War II, yeah, we would take up arms against him. Um, and I, I mean, that's what Lenin said, right? I mean, you know, now obviously I am for a peaceful transition to socialism, um, you know, uh, but World War III would be a situation that would be so extreme, um, you know, uh, would be so extreme that, I mean, you know, what, what would anyone have to lose at that point, right? So I think we are headed toward a new Cold War with China, but World War III is a nightmare that I hope nobody ever has to encounter. But, I mean, that is what Lenin said. You asked me what Lenin said. He said, turn imperialist war into civil war. That's what he said. All right. <coughs> Illiberal liberalism, right? Well, that's, you know, first of all, liberalism cannot survive without illiberalism. And that's kind of the contradiction 
the Biden administration is coming to terms with. Liberalism can't survive without illiberalism, right? The, the U.S. Army is not a liberal institution, but our liberal society needs to have an army. And our liberal cities need to have illiberal institutions called police departments. And that, that liberalism, the notion that there is no truth, the notion that everyone should just be able to kind of do their own thing, uh, you know, the idea that, uh, that there should not be any authoritarianism, that can only exist under our current system with illiberalism to prop it up, right? And that working class Americans uh, tend to have much more illiberal lives than the middle class, right? Ill, uh, liberalism is for the middle class. I mean, that's just the reality. Liberalism is for the middle class. Um, you know, it, it's, it's a middle class luxury to be able to live in a society where you're not being given harsh orders, where there's not harsh punishment for breaking the rules, where there's not, uh, there's not an ideology being pumped on you. I'm sorry, but, you know, U.S. society for working people is still very illiberal. For the middle class, it's much more liberal than it's ever been, right? Being a middle class person now, I mean, you're you're gonna read, you know, you're gonna read Howard Zinn at your school, and you know, I mean, you're gonna have a very comfortable life. But you know, you can't have liberalism without illiberalism. That said, we're seeing an interesting trend of people in the name of liberalism calling for censorship, right? Well, in order to preserve our freedom, we have to silence these people. You know, certain ideas on the internet can't be allowed because we have to preserve our freedom. You know, and, and it's, it starts to be a dog chasing its tail. And that's the truth. There is objective reality in the world. There is truth. Um, and we are at a mode of development. We're at a level of abundance that requires some level of hierarchy. And look, you can't have a liberal, liberal society in this context, right? And that liberalism is going to degenerate into illiberalism in the context of a crisis. And that's what fascism is. As Haas brilliantly defined it, fascism is when liberalism collapses upon itself into illiberalism. And that's what's happening to the West right now. We're coming to terms with the fact that our liberal open society can no longer function in the context of an economic crisis. So liberalism is collapsing into illiberalism. We're seeing that. Next question. The 60th anniversary of raising the red star for West Papuan independence. Uh, David Fox wanted me to point out that today is the 60th anniversary for raising the red star for West Papuan independence. Well, thank you, David. I don't know that whole story, but I'm sure you can educate your viewers. David has a great YouTube channel. He does videos with Dave, uh, with, with um, Dust James. They do great stuff. Uh, the Morning Star, raising the Morning Star for West Papuan independence. So David could probably tell that story. I don't know that whole story, but it sounds like a really revolutionary act. Um, and people should check out, I did a stream with Dust James and David Fox, as well as Nada, Nada, um, you know, um, and it was, uh, we talked about Stalin and his book, Foundations of Leninism, the concept of the dictatorship of the proletariat. It was a great stream, so you can check it out. So the next question was, how was Mao not an ultra leftist, despite being violent. Well, for this reason, Mao tried and did on multiple occasions form a coalition government. You have to remember Mao was an alternate member of the Gomendong KMT Nationalist Party's Central Committee, right? The KMT, which was the 
the party of Dr. Sun Yat-sen that was founded the Republic of China in 1911 was a capitalist government and it was a capitalist party leading a capitalist government, but Mao Zedong, he was on their national committee and the, the Chinese communists joined the KMT nationalist movement and they worked within it to try and push it in a more communist direction. And then when Chiang Kai-shek started killing communists, Mao was forced to flee to the countryside and they were forced to build their People's Liberation Army in the context of being slaughtered. Mao tried to be part of the KMT government, but when that wasn't possible, he fled to the countryside. And then they, they carved out liberated territory. They built the Chinese Soviet Republic. The Chinese Soviet Republic was defeated. He had the long march, but then Japan invaded China. And when Japan invaded China, Chiang Kai-shek's generals kidnapped him and took him to an island and forced Mao and Chiang Kai-shek to form a, sign an alliance with each other. And so Mao joined forces with Chiang Kai-shek to de defeat Japan. From 1937 to 1945, Mao and Chiang Kai-shek were on the same side. And the Chinese Communist Army was the eighth route army. And the other, other seven route armies were KMT. Uh, and then after World War II, Mao wanted to have a unified government with the KMT. And he wanted to have a government with Chiang Kai-shek that was united. And Chiang Kai-shek wouldn't allow it. And then Chiang Kai-shek said to Mao, you have to disarm your whole army. Your whole army has to give up all its weapons. And, and all the areas that you liberated from Japan, you have to give up all your weapons and hand your weapons over to me. And Mao said, uh, didn't you kill 100,000 of us in 1928? Yeah, we're not going to give up all our weapons and turn over all the areas we liberated from Japan to you. We're not going to do that. We'll form a united army. And Mao wanted a unified army with the, with the KMT army. But Chiang Kai-shek said, no, 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 you got to give up all your weapons. You got to give up all your weapons and you got to dissolve your army and my army gets to rule. And you got to give up control of all the territory that you liberated from Japan. And Mao said, I ain't going to do that. Right? And in the Philippines, uh, you know, the communists had fought Japan. There was a communist army that had fought Japan. And there was a non-communist army that fought Japan. And there were instances where the communist army that fought Japan uh, gave up their guns, you know, to join the government. And then the communist army then slaughtered them and they were massacred, or the, the non-communist army, right? And that there were many places in, in South Korea, for example, right? The, you know, the communists had fought Japan, the communists on Jeju Island, traditionalist thought, you know, the communists on Jeju Island had fought Japan. And then after World War II, they wanted to have elections. And the US government installed Sigmund Rhee to be the dictator. And when the people of Jeju Island protested for elections, they were all slaughtered, the massacre at Jeju Island. All over the world, communists were being slaughtered. And so when Chiang Kai-shek said to Mao, uh, you, know, uh, you know, give up your army, dissolve your army, and all the areas that you liberated from Japan, you have to disarm them. Uh, Chiang Kai-shek said, you know, Mao said to Chiang Kai-shek, I'm not gonna do that. Um, and then when, when Chiang Kai-shek started trying to forcibly disarm the Red Army, at that point, they engaged in self-defense. The Chinese Revolution was violent, but it was an act of self-defense. It was an act of self-defense in 1928 when Chiang Kai-shek launched the White Terror and slaughtered the communists, right? The White Terror, over 100,000 communists were being rounded up and killed. You know, even though they were members of Chiang Kai-shek's party, Chiang Kai-shek decided he was not going to work with the Soviet Union anymore, even though they'd given him all kinds of military aid and weapons and assistance. 
Chiang Kai-shek launched the White Terror in 1927, started killing communists. So in Shanghai and in Canton, you had communist uprisings that seized the cities, but, but were temporary and failed. And in the rural areas, they formed a self-defense army, the People's Liberation Army. They started operating in the rural areas as an act of self-defense against a government that was slaughtering them and against local warlords and tyrants. And then, next, right, when Japan invaded China, the people of China defended themselves against the Japanese invaders. And Mao had the eighth route army, and the other seven armies were, you know, the armies of Chiang Kai-shek. And then, after World War II, Mao had liberated a bunch of Chinese territory. Chiang Kai-shek had liberated a bunch of territory. And Mao said, okay, let's form a unified government. And Chiang Kai-shek said, nope, no, no unified government with you, you commie. Uh, and then, after that, Chiang Kai-shek wanted to disarm the communists in the areas they controlled. And Mao was like, no, we're not going to do that. And so they had a civil war. From beginning to end, the Chinese revolution was an act of self-defense. It was people who were being killed for organizing. They were organizing for their rights as workers, for their rights as peasants, organizing to resist Japanese colonialism and imperialism. They were being killed. They were being threatened. It was a kill or be killed situation. And Mao Zedong and the Chinese Communist Party said, we're not going to just roll over and be killed. We will defend ourselves. We will pick up the gun to defend ourselves. And I believe in the right to self-defense, right? On the one hand, I do, you know, I do advocate a peaceful transition to socialism, and so did Mao. But if people are being slaughtered, they have the right to defend themselves. Mao advocated a peaceful transition, but was being met with violence, and so he defended himself. And that's why Mao was not an ultra-leftist. If Mao had walked into China and said, you know what, screw this, no unified government, let's just kill a bunch of people, that would be ultra-leftism. That's not what Mao did. That is not what Mao did. What Mao did uh, was he built an organization that fought for the rights of workers, for the rights of peasants, for the rights of women, and when met with violence, defended himself. And that's not ultra-leftism. That is not ultra-leftism. Was Lee Harvey Oswald an ultra-leftist? Who knows? Lee Harvey Oswald's life story is one of the weirdest things. I think Lee Harvey Oswald may have been a mentally ill person who studied communism and was kind of confused and alienated from US society and was then useful to some other people. I believe before he was killed, Lee Harvey Oswald said something to the effect of, I'm a patsy. That's an old term you don't hear, but a patsy is somebody who's being used by somebody else. Late Lee Harvey Oswald, he was, you know, as a high school student, was kind of socially awkward, not well, um, was interested in communism and socialism, kind of. Um, he went into the U.S. Army. He was in the U.S. Army in West Germany. And one day he just decided to walk over the border into East Germany and into the Soviet Union. So he moved to the Soviet Union. Um, he went AWOL. And he just walked over the border and went to the Soviet Union. When he got to the Soviet Union, he said, I want to live in the Soviet Union. The Soviet government said, you can't stay here. And so he tried to commit suicide, right? He tried to kill himself. And after, you know, he tried to kill himself and went to the hospital, the Soviet government was like, fine, okay. Um, all right, fine. If you want to, you know, uh, if, you wanna, if you're going to kill yourself just because you can't live here, I guess, uh, you know, you can live here. So he went to Ukraine and he worked in a tractor factory for like two years. He married a Ukrainian woman. 
Then he worked in this tractor factory. And then after a couple years, he got sick of it. And so then he walked back across the border and he showed up after defecting to the, you know, at that point, the Soviet Union was the enemy country. Um, you know, he defected, you know, he, you know, he, after two years of living in the Soviet Union, he just came back to the United States. Very strange. They let him out of the military because his mother was sick, which is a little bit strange. Um, then, from what I understand, he moved to New Orleans. And when he was in New Orleans, he was hanging out with this group called the Fair Play for Cuba Committee. And from what I understand, the Fair Play for Cuba Committee uh, was a real, you know, pro-Cuba socialist group, but he wasn't part of it. He was just claiming to be part of it. He typed his own leaflets in the name of the Fair Play for Cuba Committee and was handing them out around New Orleans, but he wasn't actually a member of the Fair Play for Cuba Committee. The Fair Play for Cuba Committee was a, an activist group that was pro-Cuba, that was, it was mainly Trotskyites, people associated with the Socialist Workers Party. But they said Lee Harvey Oswald was never a member of the group. He was just a guy in New Orleans who was handing out leaflets. Now, one thing that's quite interesting is that, do you know who handed out leaflets with Lee Harvey Oswald in New Orleans for the Fair Play for Cuba Committee? Do you know who it was? Ted Cruz. Ted Cruz, I'm sorry, Ted Cruz's father. Ted Cruz's dad was handing out leaflets for the Fair Play for Cuba Committee with Lee Harvey Oswald. And that's true, by the way. Donald Trump, you know, got that into the media after the, uh, the elect, uh, during the election. But it's true, that, that photo was real. And Ted Cruz's dad was living in New Orleans. And Ted Cruz's dad admits he was doing pro-Cuba activism. That's pretty goofy that Ted Cruz's dad was handing out leaflets with Lee Harvey Oswald. It's especially goofy when Lee Harvey Oswald wasn't actually in the Fair Play for Cuba committee. So something weird was going on there. But for whatever reason, Ted Cruz's dad and Lee Harvey Oswald were handing out leaflets. Uh, Lee Harvey Oswald did a local TV interview, which you have to keep in mind, that didn't happen back then, right? Local TV didn't go, hey, is there some communist, some weird communist guy handing out leaflets? Let's bring him on TV. But they did. And they brought Lee Harvey Oswald on TV. They said, are you a communist? And he said, uh, no, I am not a communist, but I am a Marxist, and I like the national health care system of Britain, for example. And he gave this really weird answer, um, you know, and he's like a robot. And again, he could have just been a mentally ill person for all we know, right? But, you know, he was, he was not well, and he, they let him on TV, and he gave this weird answer about how he was not a communist, but a Marxist, and he liked the national healthcare system of Britain. And, you know, and he had a wife who didn't, he brought his Ukrainian wife with him to the United States, which is even more interesting. You know, I don't know. Was Lee Harvey Oswald legit a guy who was a communist and just thought it would be a left adventurous terrorist act uh, to kill the president of the United States? Is that what it was? I doubt it. I think there were, I think he was an, an unstable, unwell person uh, who had a lot of psychological problems um, and, you know, was, you know, discovered probably by darker forces that were able to use him uh, for their own agenda. That's what I think happened. I think he was an unwell person um, who was kind of used by more sinister forces. That's my speculation. But then again, I don't know. 
right? You don't know about any of this stuff. So there you go. Why do CIA conspiracists never talk about the conspiracy to make Americans think communism is bad? Yeah, exactly. Very good point. And it's weird because that was one of the main things the CIA did is they were constantly trying to, you know, convince Americans communism was their enemy. Uh, you know, they paid for a, a movie uh, of nineteen eighty uh, of Animal Farm by George Orwell, um, right? Um, Uh, you know, that, you know, they paid for, you know, that. I mean, the Congress for Cultural Freedom was all about trying to convince leftists to hate the Soviet Union. Um, that, yeah, a lot of what the CIA did was try to manage public opinion uh, to be anti-communist. So, yeah, the idea, you know, it's like, and, you know, towards the end of the Cold War, it got confusing, right? Because there were some communists who were kind of friendlier to the United States, like China, like Yugoslavia. And so it got confusing. But, yeah, a lot of this conspiracy Conspiracy stuff um, is coming from like a John Birch Society perspective. Thank you for the education, small socialist channel here. Sure, glad to be helpful. But um, you know, a lot, you know, a lot of this conspiracy stuff, you know, uh, is written from like a John Birch Society perspective, where communism is the vast Wall Street plot against the small businessman. You know, and uh, you know, it's like Alex Jones. He sits there, and you know, I mean, they sit there because Ho Chi Minh worked with the United States against Japan. During World War II, that proves that you know the, the Vietnam War was staged and that Ho Chi Minh was an agent of the USA all along. And because Fidel Castro briefly got some US support towards the end of the Civil War, that proves that Fidel Castro is a CIA. This is all, you know, the conspiracy mindset, it leads to this, this view that everything is secretly controlled by the, the dark Illuminati. What they're missing is that, that if that was the case, the world, things would work much better, right? If that was the case, if there was one, you know, central conspiracy that controlled everything, uh, things would work. We wouldn't have all the problems we're having. The reason the power went out on Thanksgiving in Southern California is because it doesn't work. That's the thing. The elites, yes, there are some people that have more power than other people, but they're fighting with each other. The elites are fighting with each other. And even they are following the irrationality of the market. If there was some Illuminati that was secretly controlling everything, things would work a lot much easier. But they don't. We live under the irrationality of capitalism, not the rule of some secret cabal. All right. All right. What is, uh, what do I think of traditionalism? Well, traditionalism is a school of thought that's associated with Julius Evola. It's a form of right-wing uh, conservatism. It's a hard right you know, school of thought. Um, it's associated with fascism, but it's not fascism. Fascism is, it, it tends to, you know, fascists, fascism is a modernist ideology. Right, fascists build you know right-wing populist movements, etc. Um, traditionalism is all about authority. Uh, Julius Evola is the main scholar, you know, that people associate with traditionalism. He's an Italian intellectual who was, you know, going into. Um, he studied Hinduism. He studied Tibetan Buddhism. He studied ancient civilizations, and he was looking for what he called the organic state, right, the perfect civilization. Um, and he argued that uh, we needed to find the perfect formula for, for how a society should be going and that there was a fall from grace, right? He talked about how every religion, you know, in Christianity, they talk about the fall of man and Adam and Eve. And basically he argues that we used to be perfect. There's a perfect way of organizing a society, but we've gotten off the rails, we've gotten off track, and that you're trying to get back to the perfect way of organizing a society, the organic state. It's uh, this belief that, that truth can be found by studying ancient religions and studying ancient mysticism and trying to build 
the, you know, build a society more in line with the authoritarian, you know, he loved the caste system in India. He loved Tibetan Buddhism and how, you know, everyone's just born into their caste and there's no strikes or protests. It's, it's a strange school of right-wing thought that pretty much glorifies feudalism. That's really what it's about when it really gets down to it. <coughs> All right. Are progressives the left wing of neoliberalism? I mean, a lot of them have become that. Yeah, I mean, when they emphasize, you know, they still believe in privatizations and capitalism and free markets, but they, they put more of a social justice spin on it. So I can see that. Uh, did the French government assassinate Sankara? I don't know enough about that. So there you go. Um, all right. Well, it looks like this is the end of the broadcast, folks. Uh, it's ending here. A new upsurge in the struggle against U.S. imperialism is now emerging throughout the world. Ever since World War II, U.S. imperialism and its followers have been continuously launching wars of aggression. But the people of various countries have been continuously waging revolutionary wars to defeat their aggression. While the danger of a new world war still exists and the people of all countries must get prepared, revolution is the main trend in the world today. While the danger of a new world war still exists, people of all countries must get prepared, revolution is the main trend in the world today.